All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, glad you're here this morning, and I'm glad to be up here being able to continue our series on the pursuit of Christ. Um, today, we're going to cover time and how that relates to pursuing Christ, how it relates to our lives as Christians. Um, interesting. Uh, before, sorry, I hear music. <laughs> uh, so before, before I get started, I want to open us in prayer. Um, so if you'd pray with me. Father, I come before you this morning. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for just the blessings you've given already. Father, I thank you for the blessings that I know we will receive. Lord, I ask that as I give this message, you take everything away from me and just allow me to deliver it as your spirit would intend. And Father, I pray that we would be open to the moving of the spirit and open to the word you would have us receive. Lord, I thank you for this church and I just pray a blessing over it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so time. So I've got a question for everyone. How many people feel like their 24-hour day, they've got enough time to do everything that they need to do? No one? No one? No? Oh. Well, I, I feel the same way. So time, right? We're all looking for that extra hour, that extra day, that extra whatever to try and have enough time to do everything. But there's time is unique among a lot of things, right? Time is the only truly infinite resource we've got right? Um, you can think of this in terms of like the rest of the resources in life, money, food, rare earth metals, however you want to look at it. All these things are finite. Um, but when you look at it, you can always, to some degree, get more. But time, time is the one thing that is genuinely finite. And this comes through multiple, multiple aspects. The first aspect of this we can find in Genesis, in chapter 6, verse 3, this is just before the flood happens. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So before the flood, before God said this, there were generations of people that lived centuries, multiple centuries, six, seven, eight hundred years. Um, and God eventually said, you know, 120 years, that's, that's the cap. Um, and so when I say time is finite, right, our time on earth is genuinely finite. There is an upper limit of what we can get to. But even more so than that, um, we find in the book of James that not only is our life, is our time finite in that regard, it's finite in a more volatile way. In the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, James writes, Come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James is basically saying, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed an hour from now. We're not guaranteed anything beyond this moment. To put it in practical terms, I'm not technically guaranteed to step off the stage alive. How many people do we know that they're perfectly healthy, they go to sleep and then never wake up again? Or they're perfectly healthy and they have a heart attack and just drop dead. People who should have tons of time left and yet they're cut short. That mortality takes hold and we're just stuck with an even less amount of time than we thought we might have. 
So I realize that's a very kind of depressing, grim look at it, but it's all that is to say that what we spend our time on matters. How we focus our time matters. So how do we as Christians prioritize our time? Now, you can think of this in multiple ways, especially when you're talking about the pursuit of Jesus. We can say, well, we've got so much time, let's just prioritize it, right? And Jesus is God, so we'll put him at the top of the list. We'll give him 10 minutes, and we'll move on to option t- to number two, and then number three, so on and so forth. Um, but I don't think that gives the right weight to who Christ is, to say we just need to prioritize him along with everything else we need to do, right? Because we've got, you know, most of us working eight plus hours a day at least. And if you have a healthy sleep cycle, you've got another eight hours. And then that's not counting eating. It's not counting going to get groceries. It's not counting chores around the house, a commute to work. Like you, you tally all this stuff up that is required to live and you're well past two thirds of your 24 hour day. You've only got this little pocket of time left to do anything with and to say, we're just going to prioritize everything. And Jesus is He can exist within this little pocket because everything else has to happen. I don't think that quite gives the gravity of who Jesus is. So prioritizing things in that matter, I don't think is the correct way to do it. I think what we should do is something more along the lines of try to understand human existence, the human experience. Um, And that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. Um, So with that, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so Ecclesiastes, book in the Old Testament, it's a book of wisdom literature right after the book of Proverbs, right? And most of us know Proverbs. It's a book of fantastic one-liners that we can take and put on a sticky note, put on our mirror scene every morning. Um, you can take it, you can put it on your social media thread, and it just works, right? You can take it out of context. It's just pure, awesome one-liners of how to live a godly life. Ecclesiastes, while having tons of really good one-liners in it, it's different. It's a book that was wrote entirely to be taken as a whole. It was wrote by King Solomon. He was the son of King David. Um, and Solomon is unique in that after he took the throne, he was leading God's people well, and he made, I believe the Bible says, a thousand sacrifices one day. And then that night, God comes to him and says, I'm pleased with you, Solomon. Ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And Solomon gives this really humble response. He says, God, I want to be wise because who can lead your people without your wisdom? Um, And the cool thing about this is God almost seems taken aback by this. He's like, you could have asked for money, could have asked for fame, power over your enemies, a long life. And yet you ask to be well-equipped to do what I have asked you to do. And so God says, I'm going to make you wise um, in addition to giving you fame, power of your enemies, and wealth. And so Solomon is this unique individual in history who has been blessed with wisdom by God directly. He's been blessed with wisdom that he might understand and lead well. And Solomon takes this wisdom and seeks to understand the human experience, so to speak. And he documents this in the book of Ecclesiastes, trying to understand everything that there is to understand about what human life is, what has meaning? What should we do with, our, with the time that we've got? And so Solomon, he writes this, and the audience he's writing this to is actually his children. 
So he's at the end of his life. His children are going to take the throne. He says, I've got, God gave me this wisdom. I, he helped me understand what it means to live. So I'm going to give this, I'm going to write this to my children so that they might understand what it means to live and be human. And he starts this out by saying perfectly pointless. Says the teacher, perfectly pointless. Everything is pointless. That is a very, that's the first thing he starts out this book with. It is a very grim, a very depressed view of the world. And part of why this book has a reputation of being a depressing book. But Solomon is going to spend the first 11 chapters proving that point. Um, you might have heard it say, vanity of vanities. Um, this is the view that Solomon concludes after living a life blessed with the wisdom of God and seeking to understand all that he can. So with that, I want to read the rest of Solomon's opening remarks. I want to read Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 through 11. Vanity of vanities, said this preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the foundation of Solomon's worldview. This is how he views life. And when he says things are pointless, I mean, these are examples. The sun rises and it sets and then it rises again, constantly change, going through that cycle. Generations go and come and yet the earth is still the same. And Solomon goes throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, pointing out different things, proving different aspects to be pointless. And he uses that phrase, this is pointless or everything is pointless, 23 different times. Uh, I believe the next slide has, has all of these. Every one of those verses, I'm not going to go through all of them because that would take forever and you guys would get bored and get up and leave. So instead, these are all examples of Solomon saying something specific is pointless or saying everything is pointless in conclusion of something that he has observed. You see, he went through life. He did all the kingly things. He built a really big palace for himself. He built gardens. He had servants. He had entertainers. He had hundreds of wives. In his own words, he did not deny himself anything his eye desired or anything his heart desired. And when he found all that to be pointless, he then went and tried to live as the common people did, as you and I would. Um, trying to understand what we work for, what we do, why we do what we do. And he con his conclusion was also, it's all pointless. So the grand conclusion of Solomon's worldview is that our desire for money and status and power, material things, legacy, all of it is pointless. 
And just as a note, Psalm is not saying if any of this is good or bad. He's saying that regardless of if it's good or bad, it's ultimately pointless. Um, I mean, we can think of an example of leaving a legacy for our children, wanting to give them a better life than what we had. We would all agree that that's good, yes? Psalm is not arguing if that's good or bad. He's just saying, in general, it's ultimately pointless. Now, the question is, why is everything pointless? Why does Solomon view all of these things and the entirety of what humans can do within their own power as pointless? We find that in chapter 9. This is the shortest spot that Solomon does this. He likes to be very wordy and long-winded. So I promise this is the short version. Um, so chapter 9, the first six verses, Solomon writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same events happen to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the heart of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon views everything as pointless because of our mortality. Because within our own power, the impact we can have on life is limited by our mortality. The things we do as he said in his opening remarks, a generation comes, a generation goes, and yet the earth remains. And people don't remember the former things, and they won't remember the future things that happen, because we're all mortal, and the earth remains the same despite our best efforts. Look at human history and think about how many individuals are actually remembered in any regard. Was it a minuscule fraction of a percent at best, right? I mean, you can think of leaders in high power that made huge impacts on human history, like Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, George Washington. But even among these people, we only remember one or two things. And even among these people, think of how many other rulers had huge impacts on history that are just forgotten, lost to the sands of time. And even those within our recent history, how many of us can name every US president and even if you can name every U.S. president, how many of us know something that each of these presidents did and is not just a name that we associate with the position? What we can do within our own power doesn't seem to have a lasting effect on the earth. And that is the reason that Solomon declares everything is pointless. So then the question is, what do we do? What's it matter if we spend our time doing anything if everything is pointless? And Solomon gives a brief explanation of this, an explanation of how we should live our lives. 
In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Solomon writes, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Eat, drink, and be merry. We've all heard that phrase at some point, right? And this is every time that Solomon uses some variation of that. Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment in the work of your hands. And Solomon declares that this is what God has given us. And that even though our actions don't have some great lasting effect on the earth, God has allowed us to find joy in those actions. And even the most mundane things, God has blessed us with the ability to find joy in them. And there's another example, which is the next one listed here in chapter 3. If we read chapter 3, verses 9 through 14, Solomon writes, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then Solomon is going to contrast this with verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So in contrast to Solomon saying that all of our actions, all of our hard work, all of our toil under the sun, as he puts it, while that does not have an eternal impact within our own power, the things that God does, because he is not limited by our mortality, but is immortal, immortal he is eternal, he is everlasting, the things that God does, those are also everlasting. Those also go far beyond our limited life. And there's nothing we can do in our power to change what he has done, to either add to it, to take away from it. So God has all the power to make lasting change, lasting impacts, and we have none of it. We can make changes for our generation or potentially the next couple of generations, but we're limited there. That's the best we can do. So how does it affect it affect us? If God's work is eternal and ours is not, if God's work can have purpose beyond our generation, beyond the grave, and ours cannot, how does that affect us? And this is the this is the grand point that Solomon is trying to make to his children. Right? This is the entire purpose of Ecclesiastes. I said he spends eleven chapters proving that everything is pointless. He then spends the last chapter chapter 12, giving them the answer to why to this. So if we read chapter 12, first seven verses, Solomon writes, Remember also your Creator. In the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and the daughters of song are brought low. 
They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In verse 8, I don't know if I put up there, but vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Solomon declares that they are to remember their creator. And from the days of their youth till the days when they go to the grave and their spirit returns to God. The entirety of the time of when they're able to comprehend who God is to the time when their mortality takes them, we are to remember our creator. That is the grand purpose of Solomon's writing in Ecclesiastes, that the things of this world and our actions within it and actions within our own power, it's all pointless. So what can we do? Remember our creator. He says it a bit more concisely, quite a bit more concisely, um, in the last two verses of chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. It reads, the end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God is the only one who can take what we do and give it lasting purpose. He's the only one who can take what we do and give lasting purpose because our own power is going to be limited by the grave. But God transcends all of this. He's the creator. With a word, our universe sparked into existence. And with a word, one day it will become sparked out of existence, replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. So everything we do within our power, it is temporary. But everything that God does and allows us to do through him is eternal. Lasts far beyond anything we could ever, we could ever imagine. So how does this all relate to time, right? The idea of the human experience is that our own power is pointless, but God's is eternal. And if we are able to work through the power of God, our actions can be eternal, can have purpose. So what does that mean for us? How do we spend our time? I started out with the idea of a list of priorities, right? We've, we've tossed Jesus at the top, give him X amount of minutes, and then move on to the next thing. If we are to prioritize what matters and what has lasting purpose in life, it starts with Jesus. He's the first, and there's no second. He's the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega. Because everything we do, every minute we spend, should be in the pursuit of Christ. The Apostle Paul sums us up very nicely in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, verse 17, Paul writes, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, it's not about how much time do we spend in the pursuit of Christ. It's not about how much time do we spend doing other things. The realization is that whatever we spend our time doing, everything we spend our time doing, it should be in the pursuit of Christ. Whether that's going to work, whether that's going to the grocery store, whether that is coming to church. In everything we do, 
in all of our work, our free time, our aspirations, every minute we should spend in the pursuit of Christ so that everything we do is in the pursuit of Christ. And this is all to say, you know, I said, just to live, you've got, you know, eight plus hours of work, you've got hours of sleep, you've got time to eat, time to do all these other things. They're just like the bare minimum to survive in this world. And what it comes down to is that we must spend, while all that time is required, while we're doing that, we can still pursue Christ. It is not something separate from Christ, but it is a part of our walk with him. So the way we handle ourselves at work, the way we treat others when we're at the grocery store, the way that we do everything and the way we spend every moment of our time, it can all point back to Christ. It can all be in service to Christ, having changes, impacts on people's souls, which go far beyond the grave. So there's no spend X amount of time with God or try to make sure you've done X amount of Bible reading or anything like that. Everything we do should be in the pursuit of the risen Christ. So I started this out with that grim reality of our mortality, right? That we're not guaranteed the next moment. We've got 120 years at best. If you look at the American lifespan, we're at what, 70, 80 years? But there's a second clock ticking through all of this. And that's the clock of Christ's return. You see, when Christ died and rose again and then ascended into heaven, he didn't say, see ya, I'm out. He said, wait for me, I'm going to return. And when he returns, he's going to come at the sound of a trumpet, the shout of an archangel, and then all the dead and living in Christ will rise up to meet him. And at that point, the pursuit of Christ is over. He's there. There's no more time. So that's our second ticking clock. If we flip over to Matthew, Jesus speaks about this briefly. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44, Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two, will be, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So just as we are not guaranteed our next breath due to our own mortality, we are not guaranteed the next moment because at any moment in the next few minutes to thousands of years from now, Christ could return. We don't know. And we need to live as if he is coming any moment. If the band wants to make their way up, um, the reality of this is, is that 
because we're not guaranteed this moment, because, because we're not guaranteed the next moment, sorry, when do we start our pursuit of Christ? We have to pursue Christ now because we are not guaranteed later. And whatever that might look like, whatever that may be for you, whether that is spending more time in the Word of God or whether, whether that's even starting that pursuit to begin with, I want us to remember, I want us to understand that we have now, but we don't have tomorrow. We hope we have tomorrow, but it's not guaranteed. So in our pursuit, when God calls us to do something, we have to do it now because we may not get that second chance. So as the band finishes getting ready, if everyone wants to stand, um, I just want us to think on this, right? As we worship God, as we lift praise to God, reflect on who he is, the one who can take everything that we do and give it lasting impact and purpose. I want us to be a, listen to the spirit and hear if God is calling us to do, to move, to do anything. Whether that's coming to him for the first time or whether that's he's leading you to do something greater than anything you've done before. Giving you that opportunity to be a co-worker of his, being able to make a lasting impact on someone's soul. I'm going to ask if, I don't know if Jake is out here, but if he is not, yep, Jake's going to be back there. Um, Allie is going to be over there. I'm going to go back to the sound booth. If God is calling you to anything and you need someone to pray with, or if you just need someone to pray with in general, any of the three of us would love to pray with you. If God is calling you to pursue him for the first time, I would beg of you not to ignore that call, not to leave this building without talking to at least someone, right? Any of us would love to talk to you about that, would love to explain what it means to follow and pursue Christ personally. And with that, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I just ask that everyone lift up a joyful noise of praise to God. Father, we come before you again. I thank you for today. I thank you for the work that you give us, for allowing us to, be, to take part in what you do, Father. That our lives and the things that we do could have a greater impact than they could if we were just on our own. Father, I thank you that the pursuit of you is not something that you weigh on us and say we have to find some other way to live, but that you tell us to serve you in everything we do, even those mundane things that are required for life, like going to work, going to buy groceries, Lord. I thank you for all that you do and for walking with us. And Lord, I pray just a blessing over this church. As we lift up praise to you, your spirit would move and be felt by every individual here. And all of this, God, is in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.